Today we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 16. We're going to start, however, in our reading and in our listening to the word of the Lord with verse 9. We're going to cover verses 9 down through 16, first of all, and then we're going to wrap up with what is really at the heart of this chapter of Scripture, verses 6 to 8. Okay, so we'll begin in verse 9. Let's start with prayer. Father, we thank you that we may now quiet our hearts and be still and tune in to your word. It is such a great privilege, Father, for us to to listen together to the word of God. Normally we're on our own. And normally we're just inundated with everything screaming at us and demanding our attention from the world. And not every voice out there is necessarily looking to lead us astray. Sometimes it's simply schedule and tasks calling for our attention. But there are so many voices, Father, who would lead us away from you. I thank you that you keep us. I thank you that you have promised to keep us until the day of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that we will be glorified with him. We long for that day. Until it comes, O God, I pray that you would continue your great work of making us pure and conforming us to your Son. I pray, Father, that you would work now through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to further that work. Purify us. Draw us close to you. It's our cry. Father, pour out upon us your Holy Spirit. And may we exalt in your Son, our Lord Jesus, and draw near to him, to walk with him humbly. We ask in his precious and holy name. Amen. Look at verse 9 of Micah chapter 6. The voice of the Lord... Micah thunders from the pulpit. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. And he is about to really pound it home. It's like he has his hand in midair. He's about to bring his palm down upon the pulpit. And he stops. He pauses. See this? The voice of the Lord cries to the city. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. He pauses mid-thunder, so to speak. Why? Why does he pause? Let's take a little bit of a roundabout way to answer this. might not think it's very important, but we'll make an important point. How seriously do you think that God takes dishonest business practices? How personally do you think God takes it when the seller takes advantage of the buyer, when the vulnerable are taken advantage of? How seriously do you think God takes it when the product is cheap, but the price is high, when the service is half, but the charge is full? Our tendency, I think, is likely to to compare those kinds of sins, you know, 
ripping somebody off in, in a trade or some kind of deal, compare those sins against others. And if we're personally guilty of them, of these, the dishonest practices, say, I can think of a whole lot worse than that. At least I'm not guilty of A, B, C, a, B and C wretched sins. At least I don't do, you know, this in this book, chapter, and verse. Besides, I go to church. If we fail to give God his due, he takes it personally. And we get that. But I think that we tend to think of God's due in strictly religious terms. In churchy terms. Because, you know, that's God's territory. But God also takes very seriously, God hates dishonest business practices. Because that's his territory too. There is one God. And he is God over all things. There is no spiritual here and secular there. Because every realm and every responsibility and every relationship is under his lordship. But I I want you to see how odd this is in, in one sense. See... If, if Marshall hits Joel, or Joel hits Marshall, I don't say to the offending party, what did I do to you? What did I do to you? I wouldn't say that. And if I did, they would look at me like, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. But God does. When we sin against others, he doesn't say, what did he ever do to you? Or what did she ever do to you? What does God say? He says, what did I do to you? He says, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? This is verse 3. He says, answer me. All of our offenses that we commit against others are ultimately and thoroughly, first and foremost, against God. And that's why Micah pauses, I believe. As he says, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, He knows that the indictment that's about to follow consists of charges that we will be very quick in our minds to dismiss. Not that big of a deal. And so he says, before he lets the thunder loose and brings the palm down upon the pulpit, he says, it is sound wisdom to fear the name of the Lord. It is sound wisdom to listen to whatever God says. It is wisdom to tremble before him and at his word. So let us hear what he says. Continue in verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The charges that are listed here are simply the tricks of the trade in the Jerusalem marketplace. The merchants were robbing their customers with every means at their disposal. They would give them less than what was promised with deceitfully smaller measures. Let's say that they were going to buy an ephah of grain or, or something like that. I think this is how it works. I think I have my details straight. An ephah is worth about, is about the same as five gallons. So, you know, it's five gallon bucket of grain. 
Well, the smaller measure is not a five-gallon bucket. It's a four-and-three-quarters-gallon bucket. So that the customer gives le- gets less than what he has paid for. Or there are these deceitful weights. So the weight has one thing on its marking. But the actual weight of the mass is something entirely different. And by this, the sellers made the customers pay more and gave them less. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. That's Proverbs 20.10. God hates the falsehood that prospers one person and damages another. What is at stake if foolishly we don't tremble at this word from God? If we dismiss it? Micah says, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. There were going to be serious consequences. Assyria, in Micah's day, was the rod. Shortly to follow was going to be Babylon. They would do even worse damage, as we know. But one day, the one who bears the rod will be the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given all judgment to the Son. In Revelation, it's described that he will bear the rod of iron. He will rule with an, a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Is that too much? Is that going too far? Is that cosmic overreaction? Micah says it is sound wisdom to fear the name of God. Hear of the rod and him who appointed it. Do you fear God? Is there a realm in your life in which you withhold obedience from God? Is there a realm in your life, a a territory, a relationship, or, or whatever, in which you are withholding obedience from God? Do you think of church and everything associated with it, spiritual things, as we like to think of them, as giving God his rightful due so that you then have the right to do whatever you want. If you have that thinking, you don't fear God. Stop. Look back to where you have fallen from and repent. And in repentance, cry out to God and pray, unite my heart to fear your name. Pray that on and on and on until you receive what you ask for. A heart united to fear the name of God. Not a divided heart, a whole heart to fear God. And then put that prayer on repeat for the rest of your life. So that's all of us. We need to constantly be crying out to God, unite my heart to fear your name because it's not natural to fear God with your whole heart. It takes a supernatural work. We need his enablement. So the rich man was using every means at his disposal, and he saw every poor person as disposable, all to gain more. That was the Lord's indictment. Now look at his sentence. 
He says, therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Long ago, before this, God had promised his people Israel that they would have the blessings of the land for obedience to the Lord of the land. But if they rejected the Lord of the land, then the blessings of the land would be withdrawn from them. So look at verses 14 and following. He says, this is his sentence. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I make you a desolation, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. They were walking in the statutes of Omri. Omri was a wicked king of Israel who had lived quite a while before this time period. Ahab was his son whose wickedness even outdid that of his father. I'll give you an example of the wickedness that typified Ahab's reign and really typified the goings-on in Jerusalem. There was a man in Ahab's day by the name of Naboth, and Naboth was a man of integrity. Naboth owned a vineyard. Ahab saw it. Ahab coveted it. He wanted it badly. And so he asked Naboth if he would sell it to him. But Naboth, being a man of integrity, said, I can't. It would be wrong for me to sell to you my inheritance. Well, at this, Ahab was dejected. He was downright depressed. When his wife Jezebel saw this, well, she was none too pleased. And so she hatched a plan. She said, don't worry, Ahab, I'm going to take care of this. And so she hired some men to falsely accuse Naboth. He was put on trial, found guilty, and stoned to death. Subsequently, Ahab comes in, swoops in, and takes the vineyard of Naboth for himself. And now Ahab feels better. That typifies the reign of King Ahab. The Lord is saying to his people, this is his indictment, that you are walking in the ways of Ahab. That was the exact kind of thing that was going on in Zion. And they would pay for it. The end of gaining the world is losing your soul. The end of gaining the world is losing your soul. Notice, If you reject the Lord of the earth, you will lose the Lord and the earth too. That's exactly what he says in verses 14 and 15. Eat but not be satisfied. You'll hunger. You'll put away but not preserve. It'll be given up to the sword. You'll, You'll sow but not reap. Tread olives but not have oil. You'll tread grapes but not drink wine. He says if you reject the Lord of the earth, You will lose the Lord and you will lose the earth too. But there's something more about this. Because these weren't people who simply, completely rejected God. Micah is not writing to a bunch of atheists. They believe in God. They are 
in a lot of ways, keeping the regulations of the Sabbath day. They are attending feasts and solemn assemblies. They are offering sacrifices and so on. And so this is what Micah is also saying. Not only will you lose the Lord if you reject Him, but if you seek the Lord for the earth, not just reject the Lord for the earth, but if you seek the Lord to gain the earth, to gain the world, you will lose the world and the Lord too. We have to learn this. The ultimate realization of this will be in hell. People believe, not only those who are completely secular and have rejected God altogether, but many who profess Him, many who are filling churches this very morning, believe that a loving God would not condemn anyone to hell. That it would in fact be unjust for God to condemn anyone to hell. And I do not understand that at all. I think it is complete illogic. It does not make sense. How does it make sense that you can reject God and keep His gifts? And what we're of course talking about is the essence of idolatry valuing the gift over the giver, loving the creation over the creator. That's what we're talking about. That's idolatry. How is it that you could reject the Lord and keep his gifts? Let me give you an analogy, okay? Let's say, everybody imagine, married and unmarried, that you're in a dating relationship, except for Brienne and maybe Clay too. Jennifer might not want you to imagine that. Okay. Imagine that you're in a dating relationship and you loan your sweater to the person you're dating. In the process of time, they come to hate you while they still love your sweater. Do they have the right to keep your sweater? Let's take this a little bit further. Let's say that, again except for Brianne and Clay. Imagine that you're in a dating relationship and you loan to the person you're dating the sweater that you made. And in the process of time, they come to hate you but love the thing that you made and loaned to them. Do they have the right to keep that thing? And do they have the right to demand that you make them more sweaters when the original wears out? And how dumb illogical, completely nonsensical, would it be if they said to you that you are being cruel and you are being unjust if you don't continue to make and to give them sweaters? It'd be stupid, wouldn't it? That analogy, which is kind of dumb itself, is of course nothing compared to the consequence of rejecting the eternal God who loans to us the life that he has made. Air for breath and lungs to breathe it on loan. Light for our sight and eyes to see the sights are on loan. Places to go and the strength to get there are on loan. Well-being is on loan 
from God. Friendship is on loan from God. Happiness, health, all of it is on loan from God. He made all of these good things and all of these things stream from his hand. So this is the world. They love to play in the stream. The stream of God's gifts. But they hate the source. They would want to destroy the source and are furious when he warns them that the stream will dry up completely. They would destroy the sun and are furious when the rays no longer shine. They want water without a fountain. They want warmth without light. The maid without the maker. A story without the author. It doesn't make sense that someone would say God would be unjust to withdraw all of his gifts just for rejecting the giver. You can't play in the stream and do without the source. And we also have to acknowledge that this is only one side of the eternal suffering of hell. Because it's not only that God withdraws his good, and then there is, you know, nothing. When God withdraws his good, his wrath remains. Whom God is not for, he is against. So very seriously, and so personally, he takes the sins that we commit against others. And so we want to know, don't we, what does our God then require of us? If these are the things that he will not forget, if these are the sins that he will not acquit, what does God require of us? Let's look back at verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? I think there are two ways to, to read these verses. And I, the one, I'm reading it in, in the first way that I want us to consider. I'm reading it from the perspective of the heart that is desperate to be restored to God. That sense of desperation. Because I think that there are, let me back up a minute, I think that there are two hearts that can ask the exact same questions. And the one heart is seeking after God and saying, now that I have received the Lord's indictment, now that it is obvious that I have fallen short of loving my neighbor as myself, how can I be restored to this God? What sacrifice is enough to be restored to him? Ten thousands of rivers of oil poured upon thousands of rams is not enough. The fruit of your own body, your firstborn for the sin of your soul, is not what God requires. The answer is that he provides the sacrifice that is enough perfectly enough, that finishes all that God requires for the payment of our debt. Jesus Christ is the propitiating sacrifice from God offered up to him. 
He provides the sacrifice. That's the good news of the gospel. The firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one who made it all and sustains it all and is the heir of it all, is the one who laid down his life on our behalf that we may be restored to God. But these same sacrifices in verse, verses 6 and 7 are also considered from another heart. See, but this is the religious person. It's not like an atheist or anything like that, someone who completely outright rejects God. This is a person who is religious. But they don't want to so much get back to God, but to God's gifts. They're looking to give God his rightful due so that then they have the right to do whatever they want. That's what they're thinking. And they're running through this list of questions. It's not seeking God that they're all about. They're seeking God for his gifts. And this thinking is endemic to the religious hypocrite. But to those who gather to hear God's word on Sunday and dismiss it on Monday will pay, as the Lord makes very clear, a hefty price. Religious people whose true devotion is worldly gain will be made desolate in the end. We set up a a false dichotomy. We set up false categories if we think that there is a spiritual life and then a separate secular life. That this life, this is God's territory and that's, you know, my territory or the world's territory. And here I give God his due and then I have the right to do whatever I want because there is one God and every realm and relationship and responsibility is under him. A.W. Tozer once said, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. So it does not matter what you give to God if you only want the world. You will lose everything in the end. It does not matter what you give God if you only truly want the world. You will lose it all. So this is what God requires of us. He has told you, verse 8, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In the verses right above this, let's just do a little analysis real quick. In the verses right previous to this, 6 and 7, there were three sacrifices that were considered. And they are considered progressively from the least in worth, still good, good sacrifice, to the greatest in worth. Here, we also see in verse 8, three things. But as God did not require the things listed in verses 6 and 7, these are the three things that he does require of us. And again, there is a progression. But it, it works in the opposite way from the first progression. Don't try to try to stay with me for a moment. Not for a moment till I'm through. We're not considering these things necessarily from good to best, least to greatest. We're considering these things from fruit to root. We're considering these things from the effect back to the cause. So we could think of this as. Right doing, first of all. Doing justice, right doing. Then loving kindness, right feeling. And then 
walking humbly or carefully with your God, right knowing or relating or being, I think you could put any of those words, right doing comes from the right feeling and the right feeling from the right being and from the right relating. So we're going to, this is fruit back to root, effect back to cause. Uh, Let me uh, do the tree analogy a little bit further. Doing justice is the fruit on the branches that spreads far and wide. Loving kindness is the, the trunk of the tree that grows up immovable. And walking humbly with your God are those roots tapping down deep into the life-giving stream of the water of life. Okay, now let's consider them in the order that God delivers them, from the effect to the cause. First of all, God requires that we do justice. God requires that you and I treat every person that we encounter fairly, with dignity, and with respect that is required for every being made in the image of God those in the womb, and those outside. Treat every person with dignity and respect. We never take a bribe. We never lie to our gain. We never take advantage of somebody not knowing any better, taking advantage of their ignorance. We judge no one by their social position, by their economic class, by the color of their skin. We never decide for or against someone depending on the advantage that they may or may not bring to us. We are honest with all people, even when it's to our own detriment, which is only temporary. That's doing justice. But who does the justice that God requires consistently? It's the one who loves kindness. Notice here. We're not commanded to be kind. That's kind of captured in doing justice. We're not commanded to show kindness here. We're commanded to love kindness. So the the right doing is the consequence of right affection and right feeling. Now this word translated kindness is probably, if you could name one Hebrew word that you're familiar with besides the name Yahweh, I think that for, for most of us, if you've been here a long time and you pay attention, this will be the word that you're familiar with in Hebrew more than any other. Hesed. Say what? Hesed. The, the word that when the ESV, well, when it's applied to God, that the English Standard Version translation that I'm preaching from, normally, when it's applied to God, will translate that word steadfast love. And it's this thing in which God abounds above the heavens that causes the people of God to sing more than anything else. It's the steadfast love of God. His loyal, covenant, unwavering love for His people. When this is applied to us, the English Standard Version normally will translate it kindness. Sometimes steadfast love, but consistently, routinely, will translate it as kindness. And besides, it would kind of sound odd if they translated it, do justice and love love. But that's really what is being said here. But what kind of love? Not We don't just love mushy, romantic, or sentimental love. You know, the, the drippy kind of thing. Rather, 
drawing from what steadfast love is in God, the kind of love that we are called to love ourselves is that loyal love. That kind of love that is faithful, that's committed, that doesn't bail, and that doesn't discern between people, between rich and the poor, between the great and the small. We're commanded to love this love. And having received it from God in the person of His Son, how can we not? How is it that we could possibly not love this love? To His people, through the prophet Hosea, the Lord said this. I want you to understand. This is an important principle. There is no faithfulness, He said, or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. So there's no steadfast love. What's the consequence? He says, they're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's what happens when there is the absence of steadfast love and loving that love, that kindness. If we will do justice, we must love steadfast love. If you will do justice as God requires, then you must love kindness. And if you will do justice and love kindness, it will be because you walk humbly with your God. There will be the right doing consistently when there is the right feeling. And there will be the right feeling when there is the right knowing, the right relating to God. Now, did you catch what Hosea said? Because when I recalled it in after I had read it, I, I didn't bring up, the knowledge part. He said, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Why was there no steadfast love? Because there was no knowledge of God. Those who walk carefully with God are those who know the God of steadfast love. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. I want, this is so important. This is crucial. If we will love as God loves, if we will do as God does, we must know Him. We must get rid of the ignorance that is in our hearts. We must fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him. We must walk carefully with Him. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, Paul was basically saying the same thing. You say, that's a lot to read, but you can, we can handle it. Okay? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, let's, let's pause for a second. Again, what is all the stuff, quickly, that Micah said? Well, we're being indicted for sins, social sins, social injustice, the sins that we commit against people, right? The lying, deceiving, stealing, taking advantage of others, treating people unfairly. And he says it's because of not walking carefully with God, being ignorant of who God is. So, look at what happens when you are renewed in the spirit of mind. And when you learn Christ, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We must know our God. We must know our salvation from God in Christ Jesus. We must end all of the ignorance that is in our hearts. We must fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him. And it's not just a knowing, not just I don't understand, I don't get it, or I've never heard it. This knowing is a right relationship with Him. It's walking humbly with your God. Now, when we think about what is said in Micah 6 verse 8, we may be troubled because this is the law. This is God's law. This is what He requires. In fact, these three things really sum up the law, which is also summed up with love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what is being talked about. Doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God. This is the summary of the law. One person has called this the finest summary of the content of practical religion in all of the Old Testament. And how does God require His law to be performed? Perfectly. In all things. And that is certainly intimidating. And knowing our own hearts as we do and our incapability... We can tremble before this and say, there's no way. It can't be done. I cannot obey this. You will not obey perfectly. But does, that does not excuse not striving. And you can obey. Again, not perfectly, but you can truly obey the Lord's commandment. One more passage that I want you to look at, and we're going to close, okay? Would you look at Romans chapter 8? I would encourage you, any time that you are meditating upon the Word of God and you encounter His law and you are 
rightly so, intimidated, and you tremble before the word of God, think on Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This law is commanded, but now in Christ Jesus, you are free and you are enabled. We can walk with our God. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. For those, rather, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's the good news. Wish we had time to labor on this point, but Romans 8, 1 to 4, take a long time to preach. Your sin has been condemned already. He condemns sin. Your sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. God condemned your sin in Jesus' flesh. And the righteous requirement of the law that demanded your death and mine has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ by his death. Our sin is condemned. Our sin is paid for. As Jesus said, and as we sing, it is finished. The righteous requirement of the law demanding our death has been paid, it's been fulfilled. And also the righteous requirement of the law, of course, this is implied in the other, is satisfied in Jesus' life because he perfectly obeyed, unwaveringly obeyed God's commandment. And now, now that we are united to Jesus in his death to sin and united to Christ in his resurrection to new life to God, we are free. We are free. That is, we are enabled to obey. We're free from the penalty of sin and we're freed from the tyranny of sin and we can go on in obedience. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in our righteousness from God in Jesus and the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled practically in our lives as we obey in the power of the Spirit of the risen Christ. The law is fulfilled. So, we come back to Micah 6.8, and it says, Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. There is no condemnation here. We are freed, and we are enabled by the power of the Spirit of the risen Jesus reigning in our hearts, to fulfill the requirement that God has for us. Not perfectly, but to God's glory, truly. Let's pray. Let's rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your commandment. And we thank you, Father, that we can look back at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and realize the debt of our failure has been paid. And the enablement that we need for success, for obedience, 
is here in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ indwelling our hearts. So I pray, Father, that when we read, we would not only consider our failures, much more we would consider what Jesus has done for us, and we would be spurred on to vigilant, hard, striving obedience to what you require. From the heart, from the heart, I pray that we would be the people, Father, who do justice truly, treat everyone fairly, because we love steadfast love, the kindness that you have shown to us in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we will do this as we know you, walking humbly with you. In Jesus' name I pray, and for his sake, amen.